When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey listeners, just wanted to jump in before we get the show started properly here and give a shout out to our sponsor for this episode. And it is, of course, from our friends over at Arrow Video doing amazing Blu-ray work as they always do. And two of their uh, recent Blu-ray releases, which are available now, uh, one is, of course, the classic the classic comedy from Billy Wilder, The Apartment, starring Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. Uh, If you haven't seen this movie, it is a classic for a reason, and this new Blu-ray comes equipped with a a book of essays and just a beautiful restoration of this movie. I cannot wait to watch it myself, as it is a great one. And the other is a film that I'm looking forward to catching up with, as I've never seen and know almost nothing about it, but it's a Michael Caine movie called Pulp that Arrow Video has made a Blu-ray for, and it's a reunion of the the actor, Michael Caine, and uh, writer-director Mike Hodges. Uh, They made Get Carter before this movie together, the original Get Carter, not that Stallone bullshit. So, of course, we thank our friends at Arrow Video for the work they do and uh, for supporting this podcast. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Happy New Year, everybody. Mm. Um, so, Eric, <laughs> <laughs> it's a you know it's a new year, and um, you know there's there's like a variety of different ways anybody can consume their uh, content nowadays. And even though we've we sort of you know rallied. And like tried to really really champion the theatrical experience. Like theaters aren't going away anytime soon. They still need our support. But like you work at a independent art house in Portland, Oregon, and it had a really good year this year. So there still is like uh, you know, or this this last year, not this year. Yeah. Who's to say this year? But uh <laughs> the dream um, is still alive, you're saying. It's still yeah, it's still yeah, happening. I, yeah. So like the the community is there and it it still needs to, you know, have its continued support. Um but like there's there's a variety of different ways that like uh content can get out there. Content such a disgusting word, such a brutally limiting uh minimizing word, but mm. it's one that people use a lot. So um I'm just going to continue using it until my mouth falls out of my head. Um <laughs> So we've got uh, a second installment of a beloved movie from a few years ago, uh, Don Hertzfeld's World of Tomorrow, his episode two of it, um, The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. Is that the subtitle? It is. It should really be a Just Your Tracking subtitle as well. <laughs> Just every episode is The Burden of Other People's Thoughts. That's true. <laughs> Here's The Burden of Joe um, and Eric's Thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Just shut up, guys. Jesus Christ. Um, so... So this is a this is a film. The first film 
I mean, Don Hertzfeld is somebody that you and I both appreciate in our own ways. And his the first installment of this wound up on your top 10 for that year, if I'm remembering correctly. You do. It was my number two movie of 2015. Yeah. So like that's that even that choice, like for just weird uh, traditionalists is was a little unorthodox because it was by running time alone. It's a short film. But it was one that was packed full of so many ideas, I think, for both of us, but for you especially, because it wound up on your top 10 that like you decided to put it in your it was a bold and brave choice, Eric, that you put it in your top 10. <laughs> I try to be brave. But, you know, but th- this is like an interesting point that we're at where it's like a movie like that, World of Tomorrow, both one and episode two, like they they've played festivals and like that's where short films kind of get their real chance to like have a genuine live audience reacting to it. And then beyond that, like they're not usually outside of the festival circuit. They're not programmed into normal theatrical runs ever. So the place to see them is online and like the, but I, I still think that there is a weird kind of uh, a, a limitation placed on the art of the short film. Like it's just seen as a kind of lesser than like, not just in running time amounts, but just like, like, ah, it's nice, but it's like a calling card to something else. Like what you eventually should do, which is a feature. Like the feature is the, the noble pursuit or at least once was, but I still think that that impulse is still sort of like, uh, like we're still conditioned to like, think that that's the main accomplishment is, uh, the, the feature length film. Right. So like shorter running times, shorter films, like even though World of Tomorrow is just bursting with ideas and it's so alive and kinetic and has its own just like atmosphere and, and language to its animation, you know, like there's just like there's such a sense of singularity to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and like with streaming, because you're not beholden to a model of having to program two hour movies to maximize both like the audience getting a sense that they got their money's worth and the amount of show times for a given theater per day, like as streaming becomes a sort of new, uh, untamed kind of landscape, people can do whatever the fuck they want. And so like people should, you know, open their expectations to be like, yeah, why not make a 35 minute movie that has like a big budget? Why not? Like if that, if the storyline is a 35 minute storyline and it's exploding with ideas and crackling and alive and you don't need to strain it to be 90 or more minutes. Like why not do that? And so like a world, uh, a movie like world of tomorrow two episode, huh? Hello. <laughs> world of Tomorrow episode two, too many subtitles burden of other people's thoughts. It's a 22 minute film, a beautiful follow up to a, the it's, you know, last installment. And like, it's alive in all the ways that we want. And it doesn't need to be any longer than it is. Like, I think it, I think it could, I think like you could live in this world a little bit longer, but Don Hertzfeld doesn't want that. And so that's not his vision. He wants to, he gave you just what I I believe he wanted. And like, it's beautifully succinct and like, kind of like, it still has space in it, even though it's short and like kind of clips along, Mm -hmm. there's still moments of reflective, like, hilarious sorrow in it and uh and so it's just like you know i don't know why a short film has to have a kind of like built-in limitation to it i think that like now 
we could just have all different like forms of, I don't like just art and like you can have, you know, you, you can give like an iconic artistic filmmaker $5 million, have him make a four minute movie gives a shit, you know, like, and have it be just like bursting with ideas and something that we can carry with us that like light something up in us, you know? Yeah. I think what you're saying is the, it's the labels that people are still getting hung up on the sort of, um, what does Brett Easton say? Empire thinking, right? The sort of old, yeah, the yeah. old media. Empire versus post empire. Exactly. Right. And that's, Which I think at this point we might be post post empire. Who knows? <laughs> exactly. Right. And it, it, we might be who that's the thing, right? Is there's so many of us that are like you and me that are like, why not just make something amazing? That's exactly as long or short as it needs to be in the, in the world of streaming and the internet which is still so much in its infancy right now. It's essentially the wild West, like be explosively creative and make something exactly as short or long as it needs to be. It's, it's that um, it's, it's another, it reminds me of another big thing I've been on about uh, maybe even in the last five years or so, just like watching movies, consuming media, consuming content. I'm sure you'd love me to say Joe uh, is, uh, is, it's all about now, I think, for for uh, filmmakers. Let's just call them filmmakers, and that's people that make TV, short films, films, whatever. Let's just call them. Let's just call them filmmakers. Mm-hmm. They, they content for, wizards. <laughs> so for the content wizards out there, they need to choose what's the right medium for my story. And some movies demand to be longer and to be given that mini series treatment where it can breathe or maybe become a series. Um, I think Big Little Lies on HBO, great example. It's like a seven and a half hour movie. Uh, I'm bummed to find out that they're going to pursue a second season because I feel like that was a perfect sort of big movie, you know? Um, That's a great example. And honestly, the one that so many people have been hung up on in 2017 was... Of course, David Lynch's Twin Peaks, The Return, which is like, is it an 18 hour movie or is it a show? It's like, uh, yes and no. How about like, why do we have to get hung up on these labels? I think everything sort of and it, it, it also comes back to why something like World of Tomorrow, the first one and this sequel, the the burden of other people's thoughts, why they are going to end up on my lists at the end of the year, why they do. And uh a couple years ago when we were doing our playlist uh, staff poll, actually, I, I was not allowed to put World of Tomorrow as an entry because we tr- as that staff poll, it was a vote where we just tried to be very uh, strict. You know, it had to be a feature length movie that actually played in a U.S. theater during that year. And that helps whittle things down. But I felt like, hey, that's that's kind of limiting and it's sort of um, empire thinking. I, I don't, I don't, you know, it's okay. You know, there's plenty of good movies you can sub in, but, um, uh, world of tomorrow, even though it is itself an 18 minute movie and the sequel is like 22 minutes, as you said, these are yeah. just like you said, these are so packed with ideas and story. I love, love, love. I think Don Hertzfeld is an actual genius. Like as someone that lives in America, that's an artist that truly is a genius and he's a treasure. And I love that he just continues to do what he likes to do. And people are supporting him. Um, this sequel was made off of all the money he made making a Blu-ray with all of his previous stuff on it, including World of Tomorrow, um, which I will happily uh, admit that I paid for that Blu-ray and it's on my shelf right now. It was part of a Kickstarter. The dude made so much money on that Kickstarter that it funded this. And he has now a system in place where now that we rented World of Tomorrow 2, which, by the way, I don't think we've said, 
You can rent it for five bucks on Vimeo and you get it for a week. I think I've watched it four times already. So take advantage. Um, and Vimeo actually is doing really good with their streaming service, I think. Um, uh, but uh, I guess to, to just, you know, finalize that point is like these, this guy is doing, he's created his own ecosystem and without the internet, it would never have happened. Don Hertzfeld used to be uh, sort of paired up with the Spike and Mike's animation festival stuff. Um, I think yeah. you, you probably know that, right? We've, we've talked about it, I think. Yeah, I think when we talked about World of Tomorrow, uh, the first episode, um, I, I told you like my, I think it was Bill, Billy's Balloon was like the first thing I saw at a Spike and Mike's festival at Cinema 21, coincidentally. There you and, go, uh, yeah. So yeah. like those things were, you know, th- there were like a lot of like amazing kind of uh, umbrella efforts, you know, like Spike and Mike's or like Liquid Television on MTV would yes. like get a lot of sort of like groundbreaking animation together and, uh, you know, like Eon Flux sort of present it. To, yeah, exactly. Like present it to the world, like under this, this kind of collective effort. But like, you know, now that those now that the umbrella has been like lifted and there's there's less of a, a kind of curatorial process and it is the sort of Wild West like you know, Don Hertzfeld has definitely like, you know, he's, he's planted his flag and he's, uh, you know, he's dug in and he's done the work. And so he's like, he's created a name for himself. And so he can now get the support. He, you know, he sort of richly deserves like with, with his work and like, you know, he, he can charge four ninety nine for a 22 minute short. And it's like, well, I want to see this. So I'm, I'm going to pay this. <laughs> Yeah, it's so cool, right? And like that he, in a much smaller, this is all relative, but in a smaller scale, he has sort of been, he's positioned himself in a way like Radiohead or Beyonce was able to do where they had so much power in their industry, in their world, that they Radiohead could give an album away for free or pay what you want. Or Beyonce can make a visual album out of lemonade or something like that. You know what I mean? Like they have the ability because on their level, they can do whatever the fuck they want. Don Hertzfeld yeah. has to be obviously more smart and smaller scaled, but on a way he has earned this by just like you said, he, this dude has put in the work for like decades now and world of tomorrow also continues the, the sequel even more. So continues his evolution into computer animation because he was only known for these very basic, almost white background stick figure type animations, very simple, but so detailed when you really look at the character elements and things like that. That's one of the magical things he does. It seems simple on the surface, but holy shit, is it complex and, you know, thematically rich and deeply sad and very funny and absurdist. He, he is so good at what he does that he's sort of earned his own career path out of it. And I think that's what the promise of the internet sort of uh, allowed for a lot of artists as it's continuing in its, you know, it's, it's infancy, this, this thing it's, it's exciting to see a legit path for a guy like that, that just deserves it. That can continue to get movies funded too. that, that blows my mind. And I think also what he's building up potentially here, uh, he said this in an interview, I can't think of where it might've been IndieWire. But Don Hertzfeld said that this might end up being like, it might become a feature, The World of Tomorrow. He did this with uh, It's Such a Beautiful Day, which is the closest thing he's made to a feature film. I think it's like an hour long, but it's made up Mm -hmm. of three previous shorts where it follows the man with dementia. It's like so deeply sad, but 
just a beautiful, beautiful film, right? And mm-hmm. I, I think by the time he gets around to assuming we get a third world of tomorrow, we mu- <laughs> you're going to scoff and I, I should too. But like maybe there's maybe he's building this like cinematic universe for lack of a better description. You know, he's doing that with what he can do. And it actually might be legit and, and work for him. Um, and whether or not we just continue to get shorts from him or we build up to a feature combining everything from world of tomorrow. I just feel like we win you and I and people that love good art you know like we win in this scenario and that's so exciting you know like that's that's like as shitty as the world is on a daily basis i still have to remind myself that like it's a kind of an awesome time to be alive in in some ways if you're into things if you're into art and entertainment it's um i I just think don hertzfeld is like the peak example for me of like this guy the fact that he exists and is doing what he does is a reminder that we are in a sort of glorious time for things being made. It's, 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 I, I really like this guy's work. If it isn't, if it isn't obvious. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think that it's, uh, well, I mean, I probably the filmmaker himself would argue with you that it's a great time to be alive, but, um, you know, but it, in a oh, lot yeah. of ways you're right. Like there's, there's so many new ways for like exciting, you know, exciting art to be like experienced that we like the level of access is incredible. Um, and like that, that is proof in itself that it's like, this is an exciting time to be alive. Like whether it's a great time to be alive, it's <laughs> remains to be seen. Cause who knows what sort of smoldering inferno we're going to wind up inside of. Um, but you know, like it is there, there is like a, just a variety of, of like things to experience and like access to it. And like, that's, that's, that's just like, that's beautiful. And there's no, there doesn't seem to be any absolutes, like as much as the experience of going to the movies seems to like, you know, be jeopardized, you know, in the last like, you know, decade plus, you know, there still is like, like I went, I've never seen like the, the theater so bustling in like, in as in like the last few months, you know, on Christmas day, like I went to a sold out, you know, showing of the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Like that's, that's beautiful. Like it's, and it's like people still value the experience. And so there, there is no absolute of like things are fucked. It's over or things are great. They've never been so good. Like, it's just like a sort of static, schizophrenic experience and i think schizophrenia seems like a thrilling good time <laughs> you know joe do you remember like when just kidding. <laughs> when you when i had started working with you when we first met six or seven years ago working for the Nor- northwest film center here in portland uh yeah do you remember how dire it felt there amongst all of our coworkers? because we at that theater and a lot of other theaters in portland at the time uh, we're going through the digital conversion. Like we literally got right. DCP right at that time. Do you remember that? Like how I do. Yeah. yeah. And you know, I remember everybody, I didn't think this personally, but it was the first time I had worked for a theater. So I was sort of absorbing all of, you know, you guys that had been there so long, I was trying to learn from you all and take it in and see how things worked. And I remember starting to think like, honestly, that kind of infected my brain a little bit where I thought the sky is falling. It's all over. As soon as we go to digital cinema is dead. Like I remember people genuinely thinking that. And I understand why I think you and I talked about it a lot too, but yeah, the, I, I just, I not even that long, much forward now, seven, eight years on here we are. And 
for one, we've talked about this in the past. DCP has gotten so much better as a as a means to project cinema. It's very good in my opinion. I still prefer film. If I can get 70 millimeter or 35 millimeter, I will choose it anytime. It's an amazing thing. It's still the best. But digital is great and it hasn't ruined it hasn't ended anything. It's changed uh-huh. things. It's evolved things. And I just think like the sky hasn't fallen. It certainly still could. We we don't know what's going to happen every day, but like I just think like the it's a reminder of the movie industry has constantly in the last hundred plus years of its existence has gone through these ebb and flows of like technology is introduced. Everybody freaks out and it keeps going, you know, and things are going to change. They're always going to evolve or devolve. But I think good cinemas, like I'll admit the ones I work at, the ones you've worked at in the past, like good quality theaters will survive because people still like to, to do that. Right. They still like to go out. Um, a lot of bad ones, deservingly, I think, like multiplexes, they're going to go down. And frankly, there right. should be less movie theaters in this country. So it's going to work itself out. You know, it's going to work itself out. Yeah. And we'll still get to go to the movies. That thing that we were freaked about losing, you and I and, and a lot of our friends and, and colleagues, it ain't going away. It's changing. But um, I it's. I know I'm inherently the more optimistic one between you yeah, and I, but I think last words from Eric McClanahan. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but I, I really do believe that. And um, I guess the last thing I'm thinking in terms of curatorial voices, when it comes to short films online, you had talked about how there sort of isn't that, or there's a lack in, in, in curatorial voices. I'm so I agree, but I want to point out that there are people really doing cool work. That's, that's bubbling to the surface. Don Hertzfeld's kind of the ultimate one. I, as I said, he's doing it himself. But sites like streaming sites like Mubi, they will play short films sometimes. Then they mm-hmm. cu- they curate a new film every day. Um, yeah. ne- Neon, the distributor that was once Draft House Films, but has become Neon. Uh, they had a very good year this year. They put out movies like Ingrid Goes West. Uh, well, the Bad Batch we liked, but a lot of people didn't. But um, they put out I Tanya. This is a really good young distributor. Have you noticed they've been playing short films, neon shorts that play before the feature? Have you have you noticed that at all? Oh no! I mean, I've mostly been going to advanced screenings of most of their films, so it's probably not programmed that way for the advanced screenings. Interesting. So um, when we uh, Colossals, another movie they put out with Anne Hathaway. Remember that movie came out came out yes. in the spring of two thousand seventeen. Uh, and um, every time we get the drive for a neon movie, you know, to to put in our servers and play, it comes each one so far that we've got the feature comes with a short film. And in the case of Colossal, it was a short film from Nacho Vigalando, the director. It was a previous film he had made. And uh, in the case of The Bad Batch, you got to see Anna Lily Amirpour's like, first movie. It's very rough and sort of DV cam aesthetic. But I saw that projected in a theater before The Bad Batch came on. So um, I think that's a cool old school into the new it's like empire thinking but for the post empire or post post empire it's like how can we continue that sort of old school a short before the feature thing i yeah. really I, I could see why neon would be attracted to that tim league and the other people at draft house have a real affection for that sort of thing um and you know we we can't totally discredit netflix because they do put short films out and i don't know how much they're curating beyond just gobbling up whatever's available but 
more more streaming services, more sites designed to actually curate things like that. I think you and I have always been pushing that um, since we've started this podcast. So, you know, then we have to mention like Neil Blomkamp and the Oat Studio stuff he's been doing, um, which is, you know, all for free on, on YouTube, I, I think, still. So um, curation is always needed to help people find the stuff worth finding, for sure. Yeah. And like, like we said earlier in the episode, like festivals have always been good for that. And like they, you know, it's, it's very visible in the sort of community industry and environment in Los Angeles. Cause like, you know, this is the hub of film activity and, you know, like as sad as it was to have the norm of film projection, primarily 35 millimeter projection transition out, you know, years and years ago, like, because you know, it was like, because it was a given for so long and like the, it's, you know, successive technology coming in after it with DCP, um, like it threatened it. Like there was a protective impulse for the people, for the curators to take care of it. And right. so you have a place like the new Beverly that only shows film prints and you have like the, the sort of allure of beyond fest and festivals that are sort of run in Los Angeles you know, attaining prints to show like of, you know, revival screenings of like, you know, big, big genre movies, like from previous decades, you know? And so like you, you, you do see what was once like a given, you know, threatened and then sort of like taken care of eventually. So it's just like, as sad as it is to like have like, we, we, because it was a given because we all just grew up watching projected film, like we didn't, we, I don't know that I noticed how beautiful it was until it was almost taken away. Yeah. You know, like it was just what I knew. And then like, so, so now going to, you know, Chris, the Christmas day screening of Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie and seeing the difference, seeing yeah. like a 70 millimeter print flickering there. And like the, the way the light kind of comes in and out in this gorgeous, immersive way, it was just like. I'm glad I know the difference now. I'm glad and and I'm glad that it's not gone and it's not going to go away because it clearly is like valued and cherished. And places like Netflix who sort of like, you know, people um who, you know, see that streaming is like the death of certain things, like Netflix is doing this thing where they'll strike prints for some of their films that are like you know, mostly streaming only, yeah. but they'll strike a print for the new Beverly to show like Okja or um, they show the Meyerwitz stories. And then they That's struck awesome. one for a, a war machine. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> <laughs> or not. I don't know. Like maybe, maybe in the theater is like the way to go. Remember that and, movie? Like, whew, whew. Yeah. It's, t- it's a tough call. It was paired with American made. Um, oh, which like, wow, wow, there's a print of that. Holy shit. That's great. Um, but are like, I actually, a few days ago, I thought about it and I was like, I wonder if they'll strike a print for what we're next going to discuss, <laughs> which is uh, David Ayer's uh, new film, Bright, starring Will Smith. I was like, I really, that would be kind of awesome to see it in a theater and to see what they would pair it with. Maybe it would be a, you know, revival screening of Training Day, which I just don't think gets enough uh, you know, re- like revival treatment, you know, considering how much of a touchstone it is for so many people who grew up watching it. Did air direct harsh times? 
He did direct Harsh Times. He only wrote Training Day. Okay, um, yeah. I think Harsh Times is a great fit in a lot of ways. Or it's even a weird fucking movie. Yeah, it absolutely. It is a weird movie. Michael Pena gives such a great performance, and Christian Bale in that movie. Oh, God. They're, it's Michael Pena, right? It is not. Fuck. Um, it's Freddy Rodriguez. Damn it, I'm a racist bastard. I, from, from, uh, hey, you know, it's, it's okay, because he did direct Michael Pena in... Um, end of watch, which yeah. like the movies, even bright, like they all kind of share things with each other. Like there's a world that David Ayer traffics in that is very familiar, even when you're introducing a fantasy overlap of orcs, <laughs> fairies, and elves in this new film, Bright, which like the the concept basically is just it's a street cop procedural that somehow has an overlap with a fantasy element that um, it's, it's in what feels like modern day Los Angeles, which, you know, most of David Ayer's movies are set in with the exception of fury. And um, I don't know where suicide squad took place in (laughs) the fucking black hole of, of lack of quality. I don't, I don't know. It's a sad movie, man. In a, in a Walmart parking lot somewhere. Um, (laughs) So, so there's something just familiar about the sort of like, you know, the, the gritty inner city urgency. And it was all like shot actually in Los Angeles, like nice going through. And it was like, shit, this is like a real LA movie just with fantasy world of Warcraft characters in it. And so like we, we talk about this, I think I'll, uh, you know, enough of the time where like, I think the, the sort the the effort of like to get the blacklist's attention of um these high wire movie pitches where like how are they gonna pull this off like it sounds so fucking ridiculous and like that's the pulling yourself out of the nosedive of the ridiculousness is the sort of feat that you kind of go to watch get pulled off and like that I think that's the pitch yeah is like how do you make a sort of real real a relatively realistic cop movie synergize with fantasy elements and have it be convincing. And like this movie, uh, you know, it's, it was written by Max Landis who wrote Chronicle. Like he, as obnoxious as he probably is to most of the public, like, yeah, he still has heat on his scripts or interest at least. Yeah. And then you pair it with David Ayer, who like, you know, Suicide Squad still was a hit, even though it was like just completely reviled and maligned by most of the public. Um, so it's just like you have like a good package and you throw Will Smith in with it. And it's just like he's hard to not be charming most of the time. Like, uh, so it's just like it was it was a good package, perfectly suited because it's not IP. It's not um intellectual property that people know like it's perfect for streaming even though it's sort of it's still built as a spectacle movie and it would fit in theaters so it's just like the the pitch is there it's all there it comes out it almost instantaneously gets shitted on by everybody it's just like this movie is terrible what were people thinking this movie should get banned republicans should you know like what whatever it was like, it just seemed like everyone's punching bag and like, you know, I, I live, you know, here in LA where like, you know, I take for granted that like all of the billboards here are ads for movies or TV. Like that's not like that in the rest of the country. So it's like, I look up and there's just billboards for bright, like all get all over my neighborhood basically. And I was like, 
I'm gonna watch this movie. <laughs> and I think that it's not as bad as everybody's saying it is. Mm. And uh, I, I like I started it, and I was like, it's dumb, but it, it isn't as bad as everybody's saying it is. And like, they're like Will Smith works. He works in the movie. Like. The writing is wobbly, sure. When the movie slows down at any point, you get how sort of like barely held together it is. Mm-hmm. But there is a momentum and there is a grit and there is a sort of world building, however much it works, however convincing it is, that is still relatively intact. And I'm, I bet it's a much better movie than Suicide Squad is. And it like Suicide Squad still managed to be a hit because it was like a known property. Mm-hmm. It was just like, in this day and age of just avalanching content, saying something isn't as bad as everyone else is saying it is, is that a worthy enough people to watch it? Probably not. But I, I think that <clears throat> it's no less intelligent than most of the dumb fantasy shit that everybody flocks to. Yeah. I, I do think that like there is merit to a lot of it. I think that like some performances work a lot better than others. Um, and I think the action set pieces actually fucking work in this movie and are genuinely exciting in the same way that a movie like another Netflix title, Wheelman, like yeah. all of that worked better than most of the spectacle movies I've w- like seen in the theaters recently because those are so overloaded yeah. and they don't focus on like the genuine drama that's necessary to make those set pieces work. So I don't know. Now... I'm going to stop talking. Eric, let me know what you thought of Bright. So, yeah, um, compared to Suicide Squad, there is no comparison. Um, sadly, as I've told you, I, I have seen Suicide Squad. I think I even yeah. admitted that on Mike earlier. Yes. Yeah. Um, that movie, Suicide Squad, is such an... It's not even a movie. That's the thing. You know, like um, The Snowman is another comparison. Uh, I, right. I, talk, I talked about that as well, where it's like... These aren't even a finished product. It's it's like they made it. It has a runtime. The credits come on in the beginning and the end. Uh-huh. But other than that, these aren't even movies. Like they're just thrown together hodgepodge of like way too many cooks in the kitchen. That is obvious because David Ayer, who is not like I, I kind of I'm not indifferent to him. I've liked I, I think Training Day is a very good movie and that's probably the best thing he's worked on. Um, but he is, uh-huh. an, he is an interesting filmmaker, and he has a vision. That's one thing I respect about the guy. And he continues to get his movies made in that vision. And then Suicide Squad seemed like the one that like Warner Brothers just broke him. And kind of, by all accounts, they actually messed with the movie and sort of came up with a compromised version. And boy, is it compromised. I mean, that's, a, that's, a, that's like a, a benefit of the doubt you could give it that it doesn't deserve. Um, mm-hmm. So... Bright is by far better because it actually, for all its foibles, it's coherent in a way that Suicide Squad is not. Um, And I think you brought up a few things that really, uh, I think, helped me understand partially why the the intense backlash against this movie before it ever even got propped up as something uh, bright, that is. I think it has to do with Suicide Squad. And I also think the fact that you talked about L.A. and that there's there are uh, uh, massive advertising everywhere for Bright. A lot of critics live in L.A. And they, I think yeah. sometimes 
the inundation they get with advertising and marketing for certain movies, you'll notice a pushback because that's what they're responding to. But it doesn't right. make sense for someone like me or someone that just lives in middle America. If they're reading that review, it's not going to make sense because there's a certain level of context that isn't being acknowledged. I think it's just, I hate this thing. I've been inundated with it. I hate it before it even comes out. Yeah. And I'll add to that with suicide squad, which is so terrible is like an embarrassing movie. It's an embarrassing anti-movie. Yeah. I think you get the, you get the, I agree. It's an unfair beating that Bright has taken. Now, I've said all that. I still think this movie is kind of bad, but I agree with a lot of what you're saying, Joe. I think the action is fun. It's fine. And I think yeah. Will Smith is a little a little late to the party in terms of... I, I honestly think Will Smith doing this role is him feeling kind of not guilty, but I think he wishes he would have taken Django Unchained and taken that role with Tarantino. Um, Because if if you remember, he was the one that Tarantino wanted initially to play Django. And I think that would have been subversive and awesome given Will Smith's persona. Um, Wild Wild West. (laughs) Version Uh, of Wild Wild West. Will Smith is like, I've been there already, QT. I I don't need to do another one. No more mechanical spiders, asshole. Oh, no, no, no. That's, they're not in. Okay, never mind. Um, and I think, I think this is a response of him realizing he maybe needs to do grittier stuff again. Because uh-huh. I think he's lost, lost some like appeal as a movie star. He used to be the golden ticket. Him and Tom Cruise were like the automatic box office gold. And yeah. That is not the case for both of them anymore. And I see why Will Smith would be in something like Suicide Squad, which was terrible, but it was a big hit and he can put it on his stats, basically his stat sheet as an actor. And then I could see why Netflix becomes attractive to him because he's probably getting paid well to work on those productions and he can actually lift those things up through the, you know, through the, the, the mountain of titles that exist just on Netflix alone. So I think this is a response from Will Smith. It's an interesting one. I kind of wish he would have done Django and chain still, but Jamie Foxx turned out to be great and that's all well and good. Um, But this is like reminding me of Will Smith in bad boys Two, where, Ooh, he's swearing. He's vulgar. He's kind of a, He's kind of a bad guy in this movie in some ways, or he's kind of, you know, he's, he's uh prickly as a character. So I thought that yeah. was interesting. He's got, too. A dark side. he's got a dark side and then I, I'll, I'll hand it off to you. But I, my big question, I want to know what you think, Joe is why cast Joel Edgerton as the orc cop in this movie? Like I just, I can explain more if you'd like, but I don't understand the idea or the notion to cast someone even halfway recognizable like Joel Edgerton in an unrecognizable part when he's not famous enough like Will Smith to draw an audience. But I like Joel Egerton, but I think this movie kind of hangs him out to dry as an actor. I feel really bad for him in this movie. I, I, I don't just because I think that like it, I think what Netflix, I think the strength of this movie is that it like, it calls upon, and I think it's perfect for Netflix as a, a streaming service. It calls upon an era of movies that became popular in the video era. And it's mm. like, it, it synergizes all of those things um, in a way that uh, like can elicit. Um, I'll get to Joel Edgerton. Believe me, I didn't ignore your comment or, or question about it. Um, but like, it's able to like call up those things 
without like being derivative of them. So it like it recalls movies like Alien Nation with James Caan and Mandy Patinkin oh, and uh, yeah, yeah. and I Come in Peace, which I don't know if you've ever seen, but no. it's um, got Dolph Lundgren and it's about space drug dealers, like which Ooh. like holy shit, like if that's not a, a kind of similarly leveled what is this pitch where you're like space drug dealers? Mm, let me see, you know, and like <laughs> you're just not sure how it's going to work, but it like takes all these kind of like pulpy. And now we're at, like in an era, like the movie also is able to call upon like video game culture. Mm-hmm. It sort of takes like grand theft auto world of Warcraft and sort of meshes them together. And so I think you need in order for it not to detach and just drift through ridiculousness, you need someone with Joel Edgerton's chops in order to like ground a character. And no, he's not recognizable. He's in like a lot of prosthetic practical makeup. Most of the time, Mm -hmm. his voice, his like vocal work isn't even sort of like recognizable as him. Um, So, but I think like his kind of like work, his character being hurt, you know, and just sort of like bumbling and kind of like a dumb fantasy character, but with like a visible heart is someone that like in order for it to register and work at all and not just be a Jar Jar Binks level, like abstraction of ridiculousness, (laughs) you need someone who can bring it. And so, um, so when you watch this again, Eric, and you're going to, um, <laughs> I think that pay attention to like the level of like vulnerability he brings. Cause I think you need a, an actor of his caliber in order to make it work. I think it is a tough role. Like you point that out of like, he is this sort of bumbling that was, I think at once kind of surprising in a way that I was like, Oh, I, I didn't see that dynamic happening in this movie. Like, the his uh his partner will smith they're the they're the end of watch pair in this movie two cops that sort of have long you know discussion scenes in cars and it's very david air for sure but like mm-hmm. will smith is the got it together black cop and in the 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 subversion is interesting in or the orc in this world this version of la is the more oppressed minority um and that's yeah. joel egerton's character they're partners but it's surprising as that is, I feel like the movie didn't do anything with it other than he has to have, that's his arc. He will become, it's sort of, I think it's sort of, um, orc arc. <laughs> I think it's sort of, um, like it, it sort of foretells right away. His arc by the end is that he will do something heroic and brave and maybe, okay. A lot of plots are obvious and character arcs, but that seemed to sort of telegraph where the movie was going in a way that I don't think it needed. And I don't think the movie successfully did enough. I think, I don't know how to describe it more. Maybe I do need to watch the movie again, but, uh, will (laughs) just keep saying it enough. It'll happen. Um, but I think that Edgerton just wasn't given enough. I don't know. I don't feel like the character was fleshed out enough to, to capitalize on that humor that could have been there. Yeah. I, and I think that like it, um, it's probably initial impulse was to kind of shine an absurdist light on, you know, race relations between police and people of color. And so it's like, instead you have this minority group that is now, you know, kind of fantasy characters. And so like, that was probably its initial impulse. It doesn't really land there. It doesn't, it doesn't entirely fumble that either. Like there's plenty that's missing in this movie. There's a, 
just like uh, Numi Rapace is in the movie and she has a presence, but she is like woefully underwritten as is like another sort of fantasy character that like she is pursuing who's in uh, possession of a magic wand, which is like the nuclear device in this movie. Um, and so this, because like it, it takes place over the course of like one kind of feverish day on like in the lives of these beat cops where like everyone's kind of, it's like the Lord of the Rings scramble for like what, who holds the greatest power. And uh, so like, that's ridiculous. And like, it sometimes works and it sometimes doesn't. There's characters who are just drastically underwritten despite them trying their best. And, but it still is just like, this was like a big gamble. Like yeah. it's a, it's a lot of money got put into uh, like what was, what's essentially like, you know, it's, it's a pop culture experiment basically, you know? And it's just like, and to me, all of the critical outpouring was really shallow. It was just like, it yeah. sucks. End of story. And it was just like, that's not enough. Like that. And that's really uninteresting. Like that's not a good take. Like my favorite <laughs> response to the movie was a, uh, one of my favorite contemporary rappers, Antoine said, y'all are tripping bright is hard. And I was like, thank you, Antoine. Thank you for that. I totally fucking agree with you. Well, I mean, I have some problems. Anyway, I agree with you. Um, <laughs> so it's just like, I, I think like the consensus and this kind of collective knee jerk response to it. Like when I, I think that like Netflix at their best, I think, you know, their original content has mostly been, you know, like what's considered television at this point, but they have had connections with stuff like Okja. Yeah. And I think, you know, they, sh- to me, they should continue to take risks both in like sort of artier movies and with like pop culture experiments like this. Like, I think this does take video game culture. That's not a video game adaptation, but it's like, it's its sensibility and kind of world building mm. and puts it in a like motion picture format. And I just think that they should be given more license to I- experiment and I don't know how a movie like this makes its money back on like, this is continue. This will continue to be the mystery with us where it's like, how does a $90 million movie on Netflix? Like, is it just clicks like pe- enough people are watching it? Like, I think, I think how it works is it essentially all Netflix is doing is they have so much capital that they've accumulated like billions upon billions upon billions of dollars. And they are spending though a lot of those billions every year and more will happen in 2018 and more will be spent in the next year by their model. And I think the real idea is that as long as they keep their subscribers, so essentially keep giving them new stuff and you, I think it's their model flood the marketplace, see what works for people and everybody's kind of happy. And then you just keep paying 10 bucks a month or whatever it costs, you know, and you, and, um, and then if they gain subscribers by attracting people that are like, Ooh, that's a new well, Will Smith movie. Like I want to see that suddenly they might start subscribing to Netflix. I think that's, that's it. That's their model is just accumulating subscription money every month from people. And if you, if you do the math and the amount of people that they already have subscribing, um, it, does start to make more sense how they are making a lot of money consistently. It's it's much more reliable than the theatrical box office model, which is essentially a gamble. Every week yeah. is a gamble. Will people right. come to my theater to see this movie and pay us? It's a right. gamble every week. And Netflix has a much more, at least right now, a solid surface. They're not walking on thin ice. They're on like 
concrete that's like 10 feet thick. They can just, they can do it. They can. Do you think, do you think that's another reason for maybe the like backlash? Yeah. I think, I think that definitely factors in because you and I have our annoyances with Netflix, but like there are critics that just think they're ruining cinema. And I'm sure Uh you and I have thought that and even said that before, but it's not the case. They're actually, they're getting movies made that would not get made otherwise. So what about that? You know, and what about all the other things that come that are cool from what they do? So um, I do think there are a lot of critics that are very much in empire mode that Mm -hmm. hate Netflix just for being Netflix in the same way that people hate Disney just because they're Disney. It's like, the biggest kid on the mountain is the one you want to take down, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's a good premise. The, the giant children on mountains. <laughs> it sounds like a Don Hertzfeld movie to me. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> me you too. have my 4.99, Don. <laughs> it's not the full report, but it's over 4,000 pages of it. Huh. Are these in order? I don't think so. There are no page numbers. Yeah, that's where the top secret stamps were. My source had to cut them off. We're supposed to retire on Friday. <laughs> ben, how are we supposed to comb through 4,000 pages? They're not even loosely organized. The had three months. There's yeah. no way we can possibly He's get right. this right. We got less than eight hours. We could shoot for City, then we'd have ten. Hey, 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 hey. For the last six years, we've been playing catch-up. And now, thanks to the President of the United States, who, by the way, has taken a shit all over the First Amendment, we have the goods. We don't have any competition. There's dozens of stories in here. The Times has barely scratched the surface. We have 10 hours till the deadline, so we dig in. Uh, The last movie we're going to talk about is something much more in that traditional realm of theatrical distribution made by an old master who, uh, Steven Spielberg, I'm sure you've heard of him, uh, a, a director that is responsible for my favorite movie of all time. He made Jaws, and he's made a lot of other movies that you and I adore and think are awesome for very good reason. A lot of people think this is nothing new. Mm -hmm. But Steven Spielberg is an interesting case, and I think there's a lot to get into with his new movie, The Post, but um, maybe just him first. Like, This is a director that I have basically lost most interest in as a modern guy still making movies. Uh, you and I, I think pretty much against the tide of positivity, like basically hated Lincoln, if I remember right. Uh, yeah. I don't like that movie. I hate Warhorse even more. I hated uh, the Indiana Jones fourth movie he made for some fucking reason. He, he was interesting for me in the beginning of the 2000s, and he's just slowly over the last 10 years become kind of more dull. And... Um, sort of cap, uh, relying on tricks, I think, that he's used in a way that makes him less less of a vital filmmaker. And I guess just to... Well, I guess I want to know how you feel about Spielberg. Uh, I'll, I'll hand it off to you from there. Like, w- what do you think about this guy right now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, like, there there are people who have just become so... Like, their, their status is kind of uh, untouchable, basically. Right. Like, they've... What they like, they're not going to they're not going to undo their legacy because they're like they're still making kind of like acceptably solid releases. Even if you and I don't like them, they're still passable. They're still going to wind up in awards consideration like they're they're still functionally Steven Spielberg movies. So, yeah, I haven't I haven't been excited about a Steven Spielberg movie in a long time. He's just consistently been working 
And like, I'm often, I'm still checking in with the legacy where I'm like, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Kind got its, uh, you know, 40th anniversary. Was that the, yeah, that's the right anniversary. So 40th anniversary, you're like re-release. And so stuff like that, where you're constantly reminded of like the stamp that he's made on cinema. And you're just like, wow, this is like, this is undeniable. Like he is like, he's a true enthusiastic like visionary in terms of like loving film and then contributing wholeheartedly to advancing it, Mm. you know? And like, and so I, you know, you, you had to like bring up the titles for me to be like, Oh oh, yeah, yeah. He did do that one. Okay. (laughs) You'd forgotten. And uh, so like, you know, he's got two coming out within a year of each other. uh, Mm. The one that's already out up for awards consideration, the post, which we're going to talk about. He's got Ready Player One coming out, I think, summer next year or this year. Sorry, Jesus, yeah. it's 2018. <laughs> um, and like that, that one's really interesting to me in that to me, it looks terrible. Um, yeah. I have not read the book, but like to, the concept is really interesting just because it's like it's basically a rehash of pop culture from the 1980s as relived through someone in a VR helmet because the world has become uninhabitable and that's the only place to go to. And like a director who's kind of responsible for a lot of the tokens and iconography of the 1980s, then like being in charge of dealing with the overload of nostalgia, like it just, it doesn't look like it's a visual experiment that it probably works better as a book, honestly, because you're like, you're not forced to uh, make that language, that visual language uh, convincing. Like you can just imagine it yourself. Right. And, uh, and it's just like, all right, so this is a, this is a concept that's basically telling you that culture peaked at a certain point, pop (laughs) culture peaked and we've just been de- dealing with this Deatrice ever since, just like <laughs> detonated. And all there is uh, is Star Wars, which like culture is not really making a compelling case. Otherwise, like Star Wars is the biggest movie, The Last Jedi, which uh, honestly, I will say this about The Last Jedi. It's the best Star Wars movie I haven't seen. So <laughs> moving on um, of the three I haven't seen, it's the best. Easy. <laughs> you um, son of a bitch. <laughs> you son of a um so so he's got that movie coming out i don't know how that's gonna work i may be pleasantly surprised but like <laughs> the post seems to be a type of movie that um he's kind of capably settling into in mm-hmm. his like you know like a, a sort of a prestige movie that wasn't always his bag, you know, like he definitely made Oscar like machines, basically, you know, mm-hmm. with like Amistad, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan. Color but these purple. were still. What's that? Color Purple was one of the first ones for him in that regard. <clears throat> yeah. So, but like kind of quieter ones like this, mm. Lincoln is still like a relatively, like it's not a spectacle movie. It's like a, it's a quiet performance movie, essentially. And, um, so the post seems to be something that he's like settled into a little bit. And like the script was one that was all like much like I, Tanya, it was a blacklist script that uh, was on the the list of like most popular screenplays published last year. And he wanted to sort of like, he wanted to make it and have it come out, you know, uh, in the first year of the Trump presidency. Right. 
because of how how like it was obviously written before Trump was president and like but it still was like you know brutally reflective of the what we seemed to be sort of trudging into which was like an administration that was very anti information anti press and so like here is a movie that takes place um in an era where those seeds were being planted and that conflict was being presented where the Nixon administration was like kind of like leaning back against the press for exposing certain things about them and about the government as a whole. And so you have this like kind of tight period piece reflective of modern times and um, a, like huge ensemble of like very likable people, people that you and I both care about. You know, you have, of course, Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep. You get a Great. Mr. Show reunion in this movie. Yes, yes, you do. You have that's what I was going to get to. <laughs> uh, Bob Burke and David Cross, and just a host of other people that, like, at points, I was like, "Is that Pat Healy?" It is Pat it Healy. Is. <laughs> like, he's out of focus for so much of the time that, like, that's him. Okay, Carrie like, Coon, who's become one of the better like TV actors right now from The Leftovers and season three of Fargo, she's incredible. She, yeah, she was the sister to Ben Affleck in Gone Girl as well, yes. and she's so yes. good in that movie. Yeah, she's she's great. She's like, uh, there's just like a strong. Sorry, there's a slot machine that's emptying out next to me. Um, <laughs> the Christopher Nolan uh, slot machine is <laughs> the exploding. Jar. No, we haven't mentioned him. Um, so, all right. So this movie, I did, I, did I talk long enough about Steven Spielberg? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. Oh, geez. Uh-oh. Um. <laughs> I here's the thing when you and I talked last time about shape of water, like I had gripes about the movie, but the movie is so well-intentioned that like your enthusiasm of it, like I just didn't like, I didn't have enough vitriol for it to, uh, to, to really rally against it. So I was like, look, I don't like how it's paced. I think it's a little too cutesy, whatever, but like none of that measures up in terms of like, none of it's a match for your enthusiasm for it. So it just ends up my take on it is just sort of like, that's eh, that's not as good as you think it is, or at least <laughs> from my but like that's not interesting really. And mm-hmm. so like I think that similarly there are merits to this movie. The movie is so well intentioned, the movie is so handsomely created. You know, it's like it's beautiful period recreation, but I felt like it was telegraphing the type of movie it was more than it was accomplishing the type of movie that it was trying to be mm. like that happens in the performances of the movie. Like, I feel like I don't know where Tom Hanks was most of the time. And like the performances are difficult to land because the camera never stops fucking moving. Like it's zooming around so much. And like, this is after a point where I was like, you know what I love? I love moving cameras. Like after I watched, <laughs> uh, I rewatched Ricochet recently from 1991 and there's like a a tracking shot that meets Denzel Washington as he's sprinting out of his house in his bathrobe and it's just kinetic filmmaking. I was like, I fucking love that shot. That is a beautiful shot. And then like in this film, I was like, please stop moving the camera for Christ's sakes. Like this is so distracting. You're calling attention to yourself. And then the performances don't know where they need to land. And like, Mm. I felt that. And at the same time, I'm like, but it's really trying and we're lost as a culture. And this movie is really trying to root you in a period where like it, the, the issue was clear. The issues are no longer clear as a culture. No one knows where to put their energy. And it's just like, here's a concise capsule time period reflection of like 
where effort like needs to go and where like morals were clear and all of that shit. And I was just like, but it's not working for me. I'm not connecting. Am I the common denominator? Am I the the missing piece that needs to emotionally connect with what's happening on screen? And I'm just not able to do it. Am I a broken person? I don't know. But <laughs> this movie sort of irked me in a way that like halfway through, I was like, this isn't going to pay off for me. This isn't this. The, the emotional payoff's not going to come. I'm going to say something that might surprise you. I agree Please. with you, but I like this movie more than you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, clearly, because I said that last week when we talked or whatever, but <clears throat> I can only defend the post so much. Uh, I sure. think my response to it and me liking it more had something to do with the surprise factor of like, oh, wow. Not, and it's not responding to the well in, the good intentions of the movie. Those are there, but I think you know me well enough that that kind of stuff doesn't get very far for me. The mileage is pretty low. I just want good filmmaking. I want a good story. You know, I want a movie to accomplish what it wants to do. And I have to acknowledge that the post pretty much accomplishes everything it sets out to do. But I do think people like you or anybody else that I think the mileage is going to vary. I think younger, I would still include you and me in a sort of younger movie going audience, uh, even though we might not feel that way. But, uh, um, Mm -hmm. We, I think more people in our generation and even younger are going to be either bored by this movie or um, more, hopefully if they give it a chance, more realistically, like they're just going to have the same issues that you did where there's this like, it it's not kinetic. It's sort of a busy film, uh, filmmaking aesthetic, moving camera. Yeah. That works a lot of the time for me in the newsroom atmosphere of the movie, the sort of all the president's men, Washington post, you know, vibe. Uh, It it works. And as a counter to something like all the president's men, which is very static and for good reason, that film is so well-directed, but like it's very static and locked off. This movie wanted a kineticism to it that I think works, but Spielberg still, um, I guess the thing I responded most positively with this movie is for the most part, Spielberg avoids his most obvious tendencies as a sentimentalist and as a, as a filmmaker that really likes to tie things with a bow so you know exactly how to feel at the end, I think he mostly avoids that because he edits... The movie is edited by two people, one of his main editors, Michael Kahn, and um, I don't know the other name of the editor, but I think this movie is very tight in a way that benefits it incredibly and benefits Spielberg as a more older, mature filmmaker that he is now. And... I kept thinking as scenes would start, I'm like, here we go. Here comes the long Supreme court decision scene. And in something like Lincoln, that was kind of all about that, but it really milked scenes like that. And that's part of what just drove me crazy about that movie. I was just like, get on with it already. Um, yeah. And the post just felt like, um, actually similarly to Spielberg's last movie, which I actually did kind of like as well. Bridge of spies. Um, I don't know if you remember that movie, but it came out a couple years ago is, that movie was solid. It felt like, okay, he's sort of tightening things up and he's, he's becoming a better mature filmmaker. And I think the post is an even smaller, but a smaller upgrade for him as an older, more mature filmmaker in that he mostly cuts out the bullshit that he falls for a lot of the time. Having said, Uh having said that though, (laughs) this movie is way too in love with slow zoom ins to a lead performers or an actor's face as they give a very deliberate address to the camera. Meryl Streep is great, but gets to do that like five times in this movie. 
Tom Hanks. Yeah. It happens too much. But the biggest offense in this movie for me is the beginning, which is just okay. The Vietnam like war scene that just mm-hmm. do- doesn't really need to be there. And the, I tell you, man, the last two minutes of the post is, Oof. is embarrassingly bad. And it's such a sour taste in, in even my mouth as I liked most of the movie that it definitely rubbed me more than the wrong way. Just, it just was like, why did you think that was the right move for this movie? It's, you mean, uh, uh, Tom Hanks wistfully looking at the printing press and saying, yes, it is. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, that's what bad. F- that's bad. But th- I could have lived with that and them walking away, you know, as the printing press is, is going. But to- oh, oh, OK. I know what you're talking about. No spoilers, you- though. Come on. <laughs> there, could be, there could be an expansion of the cinematic universe with a sequel. So. <laughs> that, there you go. That's the thinking that seemed to be at play where it's like, why are you even trying to hint at some sort of Marvel stinger to the next chapter in the story? Yeah. Have have faith in our intelligence. And I think that's the biggest issue with Spielberg when, when he does this stuff is he seems like he doesn't trust the audience to figure it yeah. out. And that yeah, yeah. Bother, that bothers me. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's where like that's the kineticism of the camera work. Like that's why it started to irk me is because he, he didn't trust that the audience wouldn't be bored. Yeah. And like that's what bores me. And it's just like, calm, don't float the camera around Meryl Streep, just train it on her fucking face. Like she's a world-class actress. Like she just like let her land the scene for Christ's sakes. And it was just like, you know, there, there's interesting s- stuff where it was like in the beginning, like tracking shots of like basically couriers running from like one, one uh, newspaper office to the next where it's like, Oh, that wouldn't happen anymore because of email or like Bob Odenkirk, who honestly I think is uh it's like the strongest performance in the movie. I it's agree. the most like it's it's the la- it's the least telegraphed. It's the most like rooted in actual kind of like complexity that's never really spelled out. Like he just seems driven by something, haunted by something, and that's compelling to watch. Agreed. But like his scene where he's fumbling the payphone, it's just like, <laughs> yeah, we get it. Like payphones were d- difficult. They certainly weren't this difficult in a Buster Keaton kind of a way. But yeah. like, so. So real, just real quick, I think that's an example of Spielberg's mishandling of tone. And that's been a problem for him, I think, especially as he's become an older filmmaker, because I think of scenes in Minority Report that have goofy humor in it where it's like, or AI is guilty of right. this, where it's like, why? Why is that there? It doesn't fit. But this is a, a more subtle yeah. version. But you're right. That that doesn't really fit for this movie. Yeah, like what he's capable of, like when you when you see it and when it clicks and it connects and you're like, Oh, Stevie, Stevie, look like you, the crane shot above the pool and AI where Haley Joel Osment's like, you know, robot little boy is at the bottom of a fucking pool and he looks up and like a, a sad, mournful teddy bear like peeks over the edge. That is gorgeous. That is existentially beautiful, dark, dire. And you did that. You Kubrick made that happen. You have an inner Stanley you can bring to light. And it's just like, you see what he's capable of. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to throw three happy endings onto this movie that makes up for all of that. Like, no, we don't want it to be made up for like, just go dark. And like the movies that like this film seems to like all the president's men is like one that like it keep that horse just keeps getting beaten by, I think what are like 
le- lesser than movies like mm-hmm. Spotlight, which I didn't like. Yeah. And like this one, I'm obviously not being very nice to. Did you like the post better than Spotlight? I'm guessing you did. I did. Yeah. yeah it is um, better. I think it's better. Yeah, yeah. It's I think it's just like a much more efficient, leaner movie. I think like it's got a, a more cur- sort of like confident momentum and uh, it, like but I used Zodiac as a counterpoint to Spotlight and then yeah. I started doing it with this as well because it, you know, Zodiac starts in a similar period. Mm-hmm. And like it's a similar environment, like a newsroom is a as a main sort of stage for Zodiac. It's not entirely a news movie at all, but like it still is like a main component of it. And like that, there's kinetic filmmaking in that. There's yeah. beautiful sort of like moving camera stuff, but it knows when to slow down. It knows when to train on the ensemble and that. And like the movies that you know, like all the President's Men and like stuff like Three Days of the Condor that came out in like the seventies. Yeah. Um, not just to name, uh, you Robert know, Redford. Robert Redford. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, but like there, I don't know. There was like a sense of like channeling the genuine dire energy of that actual time. Mm. And they, they would just leave and it would just be like the ending, the three days of the condor, which I only actually saw for the first time last year was it's fucking devastating. And it's like, (laughs) and it's, that was a devastating period. It was coming out of, it was basically like the movie was like, you know, it was like people are fucked and they will continue to be good night. And it was like, ah, wait, (laughs) And like, and we're in that period, Mm -hmm. like this things as, as great as it is that we can rent, um, world of tomorrow episode two on Vimeo, like (laughs) things are not great, you know? And like, take a hard look at things and there's something that's a little too self-congratulatory about the post. That's just like, Mm. if there is a spirit of, uh, like rebellion and, um, that the movie is trying to encapsulate that it with something that's like yes like this is fucked like and we do need to face hard truths very soberly and with you know big hearts basically and it's just like the movie pats itself a little too like liberally hmm, on the back <laughs> and uh i don't know like i just i i i am i do feel guilty because i do value steven spielberg i think he's a very good person and an incredible director at times and I think this movie is gigantically well-intentioned, but it like rubbed me the wrong way. Unfortunately, it's it's, this is a fascinating and why I love talking with you about movies, Joe, because honestly, not because you're just saying what you're saying. Like I, you're actually helping me wrap my brain around this movie because there's so many movies to catch up with right now. Uh, right. We, we still intend to do our sort of top 10 list probably next week uh, yeah. after I get to see the PTA movie. Um, and you know, it becomes, it's like going to a film festival. And if you're seeing a lot of good movies, even just good movies, you can sometimes overestimate. And I think I was just excited by the things that mostly by the things that weren't there. And then the few surprises like the Bob Odenkirk performance of this movie where, where I think I just went for it. But if I'm really looking at it, I can't really disagree with everything you're saying about the movie. And um, it's good. You're giving me perspective because I think more than anything, what I wanted to get across. And I think we've done it is that Steven Spielberg it isn't a perfect movie, not even close. I, I hope this isn't the one that wins all the awards this year, the post. It, it doesn't deserve it, but it, it's going to be up for a lot. But Steven mm-hmm. Spielberg is still one of the great filmmakers 
of all time, if not like right up there in the, the very best conversation. And I think a lot of people and you're not doing this, but a lot of people like to shit on him. I find where they're like, yeah, he's born. Like, I, I think it's very easy for people to shit on him. And it's like, he doesn't need our, he doesn't need me to back him up. Steven Spielberg's doing just fine in life and career, but I just want to defend the guy as like, he still got it. He can show you that even in the post, but I guess I was just really excited to see reminders, glimpses of an interesting filmmaker still there who doesn't rely on old tricks that just perplex me. Um, and I think I just really, really went for that. But um, yeah, I love Steven Spielberg, but I also get it. Like this movie, this movie has plenty of problems and uh, there's a lot of better movies out there right now. There's so many good movies to catch up with. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway, you, you've, you've, you've helped me out with this one. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> me too. Well, what do you say? Um, uh, well, what were you going to say? Uh, no, I was I was saying, do you you want to send the people out into the world with what we've told them so far? Exactly. Let's do it. Let's let's leave. I think they. I think we can trust our audience to pick up the rest and go from there, right? Yeah. So your the takeaway from this episode is go watch Bright, and then uh, Training Days on Netflix. Watch Instant too. So go ahead and watch that as well. Well, I, I, maybe that's one thing they can take away. But... That's the takeaway. <laughs> I'm going to just give it to you. You're Spielberg on this episode. All okay. right. So just chill to the next episode. All right. So why don't we wrap up episode 163 of Adjust Your Tracking? Um, I just wanted to say, Joe, a uh, friend of the show, Octa Kozak, will have probably words to say about you, about your thoughts on AI. Um, he makes a very valiant, I think, actually a really strong case for AI as being incredibly dark at the end of that movie. Um, I know a lot of people think that it has a quasi happy ending. I have only seen it once, so I'd be I'd be really willing to revisit it. Let's um, do a hold up soon on AI, Joe, because I watched okay. it on Octay's uh, recommendation last year, and I'm telling you, dude, it's a great movie. It it has flaws, but it's one of his better post 2000 movies. Yeah, I, yeah. There there is like a constant loneliness to the movie, to the feel of the movie, that even as it sort of like doesn't know how to resolve itself. That never relents, and so I can see why it's seen as like an over, like a really, you know, thoroughly dark movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's a great hybrid of Kubrick and Spielberg. It really is a like a hybrid of those two, and I, they're both some of my favorite filmmakers. So that I just love that too. But um, yeah, that we'll have to revisit that in 2018. I think it's a great hold up pick for sure. Okay. Um. So having said that, why don't we? Uh, wrap up properly now and just say you can you can email us if you want to contact us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Actually, I should have said first, find us and all our other shows on the Playlist Podcast Network at theplaylist.net. There's a podcast tab there that'll bring you to all our shows. Subscribe to us on Stitcher and iTunes, rate, review. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud and follow us there as well. Uh, how about social media, Joe? Where can people find us? Uh, Twitter at adjustyourtrack. Um, and Facebook, adjust your tracking the podcast. Just, uh, you know, you could follow us there, find out when episodes drop. Hell All yeah. that shit. Hell yeah. Like us. Um, Joe, you had referenced uh, earlier in the episode that something about when the world becomes a smoldering inferno. Um, uh-huh. uh, I'm going to, I'm going to second that Joe. If it becomes a smoldering inferno, I'm going to be the Seth Rogen to your James Franco and pineapple express. And I will carry you out of that smoldering inferno. In my underwear, if I have to. And hey, I will thanks, Eric. <laughs> Let me thank you first. You're welcome, Joe. Thank you for talking with me today. 
Thanks.